What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Exactly 50 years ago today, almost to the minute, a highly anticipated new movie premiered at the Lowe's State Theater in New York City, an event attended by everyone from Jack Nicholson to Henry Kissinger. The movie making its debut uh, that night is one we've discussed many times on this show, 1972's gangster epic The Godfather. And tonight's guests may just know a thing or two about that subject as well. Mark Seal is a much-admired journalist and contributing editor at Vanity Fair, where he's covered stories ranging from the Bernie Madoff scandal to the classic movie Pulp Fiction. He's a two-time finalist for the National Magazine Awards and has written articles for Esquire, Playboy, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. And his 2016 Vanity Fair piece, the Over the Hill Gang about a gang of thieves who pulled off the biggest jewel heist in British history was the basis of the 2018 Michael Caine film, King of Thieves. He's the author of the books Wildflower, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, and notably the new book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, a well-researched, brilliantly written account of making what many consider the greatest motion picture ever produced, featuring wonderful interviews with director Francis Ford Coppola, actors James Caan, Talia Shire, and Robert Duval and studio exec Robert Evans and many more. Frank and I are excited to speak to a gifted writer and storyteller and a man who once found himself in a hush-hush meeting in a New Jersey deli with the son of mob boss Joe Colombo. 
the talented Mark Seal. I believe in America. America is where I make my fortune. I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. She found a boyfriend, not an Italian. They uh, took her to the movies. They made her drink alcohol. Then they tried to take advantage of her, but she resisted. She kept her honor, so they beat her like an animal. The next day in the hospital, <laughs> her nose was a broken, her jaw was a shattered, held together by wires. She couldn't even weep because of the pain, but I wept. The next day in the courtroom, the judge gave three years suspended a sentence. Suspended sentence. They went free that very day. And those bastards smiled at me. And I said to my wife, for justice, we must go to Don Corleone. Why don't you go to the police? Why don't you come to me first? What do we think, Mark? Well, it's pretty great. I'm speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't want you to say anything else for the rest of the show. Okay. I'll just just let you run with it. I'll just recite the card. He was very proud of that, Mark. He called me up and he said, listen, I know the Bonacera speech. Yeah. And he said, but if I go too far, just stop me. But I was watching Mark's face and he was somewhere between entertained and befuddled. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Somewhere between that's great and what the fuck is this? (laughs) Anyway, it's great to be here thank you man thank you. And, and welcome and thanks for sticking with us it wasn't and it wasn't e- you're a very busy man it wasn't easy to nail you down and great to, to be you. here thank you so much and, and here and you are judging by this book if you really want scary mob stories you shouldn't see the godfather they should have filmed the making of the godfather yeah, the making of the movie was uh, was uh, you know almost as wild off screen as what you see on screen. Yeah, yeah, and including something we referenced in the intro, in, in as part of your journey in writing this book, you wound up in a diner in in the wilds of Jersey with the son of of mobster Joe Colombo. Yes, in fact, it op- uh, in fact that story opens your book. Exactly. Yes. So I, I met him, and uh, he was he was uh, you know he was older then and walked with a cane. We met in a in a diner in New Jersey, and uh, you know I wanted to talk to him about a, about uh, potentially interviewing him for the book. But he actually wrote his own book, which is really a great great read as well. Uh, but really, it was an amazing journey from start to finish. All the people that I, that I met along the way were just one interesting character after another. Yes, I can imagine. Tell us how this all began. I mean, and I don't mean you yeah. seeing the film as a college freshman back in 1972. Uh, and as Gilbert pointed out again in the intro, we are uh, it's six o'clock here, New York time on uh, uh, on the 14th of of March, which is 50 years almost to the hour. Exactly. That, yeah. that this film was first uh, first screened uh, or, or or it's uh, it's premiere in New York. 50 years ago this evening at the Lowe's State Theater in New York. Uh, in the middle of a freezing, cold, uh, rainy night. Um, people, there was a limo line up and down Broadway. 
to see the Godfather for the first time. And as you noted, uh, uh, Robert Evans arrived with his then wife, uh, Allie McGraw and uh, Henry Kissinger. Yeah. took their seats in the theater and watched the magic begin for three hours. Amazing. I, I always remember like the Godfather, uh, the, the advertisement on the radio was just the Godfather is now a movie. And then they played that. And, and it was now the guy who, you named the artist who drew the poster, which was a hand holding marionette yes. strings. Right. Uh, yes, he was uh, uh, a, ja a Japanese artist. Yeah, named Fujita, and he right. uh, had right. done uh, various logos. He was quite a talented uh, artist, and he uh, he looked at those strings. You know, Mario Puzo mentioned men holding the strings, mm -hmm. and he took that and he. Uh, created that very simple stark logo of that hand holding the puppeteer's cross and the strings dangling down and with the stark logo of the godfather in that typeface that you can never forget right no it's and, so memorable yeah and i i always liked like simplistic uh, movie yeah. posters when they show too much action i thought they're desperate and, but when it's something simple like that, that just makes you wonder. I know. It's just so captivated. I mean, even today, you look at that book cover. It's so simple, but it says everything, right? And you use the font for your, for your title. I'll yeah, the, I mean, that I'll font is used quite a bit. You know, you yeah. see that so often. And uh, that font as well was so brilliant and uh, so simple. But it just, you know, when you look at it, it just says The Godfather. It, it works. And, and you weren't, uh, no, not you weren't, uh, the people, the movie makers were not allowed by the mob uh, to use the word mafia. Yes, because uh, there was something called the Italian-American Civil Rights League back in the, in the 60s and early 70s. Um, and uh, they, the, its leader was Joe Colombo. Uh, the reputed head of one of the five families of New York. It, that was he was the founder of the league, and he felt that that word mafia uh, was uh, it put Italian Americans in a bad light. And so the producer of the movie met with the league and with Colombo and let him read the script. And the only thing he wanted was that word mafia not be used in the movie, but it had only been used one time in the original script. So they took it out and a world of cooperation opened in New York. And But wasn't the whole Italian-American Civil Rights League kind of a front for the mob in, well, in the first place? Well, on one hand, it really was a civil rights league and they were and they really did. They really did succeed in 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 in, yeah. in getting the word mafia. Uh, not used in press releases, I think, from the from the Justice Department and other places, and newspapers and other and other uh, pub in publications, newspapers, different different places. So they really it really was a real cause. So uh, yes, there was you know some people say what you what you say, but others say it was a real cause. So the truth is somewhere there in the middle. I think. Well, they got they managed to wrangle Sinatra to perform at a benefit. Yes, exactly. Sinatra. Frank Sinatra performed at a benefit for like, oh my gosh, it was thousands of people and raised a lot of money. And so this was a group. Uh, this was a group that uh, 
that the movie makers had to contend with. And and weren't the papers making fun of the movie for not using the term mafia? Yes, because after after they after the producer Al Ruddy um, agreed to delete the word mafia from the script, even though it was only used once. Uh, the newspapers covered it because there was a press press conference the next day held uh, in, in the Park Sheraton Hotel and members of the media attended that press conference and it was in the headlines the next day. And so there was a there was a lot of backlash over the deal uh, about about all of that. So, yes, Incredible. it was in the headlines. Now, we, we mentioned Sinatra and. Okay, so there's that whole scene where uh, Sinatra, under a different name, shows up at the Corleone party. and Johnny uh, Fontaine. Yeah, he wants to be in a movie, and the uh, head of the studio doesn't want him. And now, what? So Sinatra, there was that scene about Sinatra, and yet, wasn't he also asked to, or he was trying to be Don Corleone in the picture? At first, he did not want want the movie. I mean, at first, he he didn't. Uh, you know, I, I, we don't know exactly what he said, but there was the altercation between him and Mario oh, yeah. Puzo at Chasen's Restaurant in Los That's Angeles. Um, Which you'll have to give us. A yeah, I can tell you about that, but. Um, you know, he, uh, the, the character of Johnny Fontaine, you can look at it two ways. I mean, in the movie, he's comes on, he sings, he's a beautiful, beautifully dressed. He's a great singer. And then the whole character of Johnny Fontaine is where the movie turns, uh, you know, where he can't get that role that he wants so badly. And the Godfather says, of course, you know, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And the horse's head scene comes after that. So, you know, it was widely believed that that character was based in part, if not in a lot of part, by uh, on Frank Sinatra. And in the beginning, it, it seems that he did not like that portray portrayal. Because in the book, in Mario Puzo's novel, there's a lot more Johnny Fontaine than there is in the movie. I, I, well, yeah. Victor, Victor Moan was attached originally, Victor was Moan, he not? Yes. Victor yeah. Moan was attached at one point, uh, but the story goes that he couldn't get out, get out of his Las Vegas dates. And so uh, Al Martino, who had not uh, acted in a movie, got the role. And he was a, a, sing, a longtime singer in Las Vegas and nightclubs yeah. across America and New York. And uh, he really inhabited that role, right? He sure as hell did. That I, I, and according to your book, that was a total ad lib uh, when Marlon Brando slaps him and goes, "She can act like a man." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's what I was told. That you know that uh, Al Martino was playing the role. Uh, and wasn't as animated as as Brando thought he could be. And so he ad-libs that slap. And he goes, you can act like a man, just like you said, like Gilbert in, in, in person. It's great. Just I now. didn't know that. I thought I knew so much about the making of this movie, and I absolutely did not know that. It's one of one of the wonderful little gems and surprises in your book. Oh, Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. 
You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Mm. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. But just to take, just to, to to complete Gilbert's arc, his question about Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, Sinatra originally objected to the depiction of the character in Puzo's novel. Right. Long but and and their con their uh, uh, their uh, their run in Chasen's the movie had not even been made yet. Exactly. It was, it, it was based on uh, 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 and and they had to be pulled apart finally. And then later in the book, you say that Sinatra had changed his tune to the point where he approached Coppola and said, "What? Let me buy this thing and we'll do it together." Yeah, he said, "And I'll play the and let, let's buy this thing to get and I'll uh, and and I'll do the Godfather." Yeah. So. Uh, wow. Yeah, because, you know, I think by that point, the be- it was a bestseller. Mario Puzo's novel was racing up the, be- the bestseller list. And Paramount had to make this movie because uh, Burt Lancaster wanted to buy it from the studio. And Danny Thomas wanted to buy it from the studio. And, uh, and either one of them might have played The Godfather. Amazing. But Danny Dan- Thomas wanted Danny to buy Thomas. Paramount. Danny Thomas is the godfather. I can't see it, Gil. <laughs> yeah. But also, he wanted to buy... Danny Thomas was more ambitious than that. He wanted to buy Paramount. Well, Danny Thomas <laughs> was doing pretty well because he had um, uh, he had uh, all of those shows in syndication. And, That's right. And, you know, that were top 10 shows. And, uh, you know, so he was a very successful producer other than than being an actor. You know, you read the book, Mark, and you know, and you, you've you've written extensively about movies. You have a wonderful Vanity Fair article too that we'll tell our fans about uh, about Pulp Fiction. And you know as well as anybody that so many things can go wrong in the making of a movie and derail it um, immediately. I mean, this film could have had Ernest Borgnine as the Godfather, Ryan O'Neill in the Michael role. Because when I think of Italian. <laughs> when, when I think of Italian gangsters, the first one I think of is Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, or 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 Ernest Borgnine as the as the as the Don, or you know even Olivier, and no no uh, no yeah. disparaging of Olivier. Don't yeah. see him in the part. But no, th- there's I mean, so many things that could have gone wrong. Is what you is the sense that you get while you're holding exactly. that book in your hand. I mean, the whole thing is a miracle because it was the movie that, in the beginning, this uh, Robert Evans uh, and uh, and Peter Bart were saying, "What are we going to do with this thing?" The, a lot of the directors that they wanted turned it down. Um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola initially did not want to do it, but only after George Lucas said, you know, we do this, we need the money for our studio American zoetrope up in San Francisco. And then you can do, we can do the movies we want to do. And he said, I don't know, you know, and, and so uh, Lucas, George Lucas told him, well, find something in the book you like. And so he went to the uh, Mill Valley library and started looking at and reading books about the mafia and uh, he decided in the end that the story was about a king and his three sons. Right. And each one of the sons had something, had aspects of what made the king great. That's what pulled him in. That and, pulled and, him in. And Coppola didn't like the novel. Initially, initially. But then he, start, then he found these things in it that he liked. And he took the novel to a, um, he took the novel every morning, he would go to a coffee shop in San Francisco. And he 
tore the novel apart out of its binder, uh, out of its binding and put holes in it and three holes in it and put it in a notebook. And in the margins of the notebook, you can buy buy that uh, notebook, the Godfather notebook, and you can see his notes where he took that novel and that's, that novel becomes the script. So the novel really, Mario Puzo laid such groundwork for this movie. I mean, he invented this world of the Corleones and, the, and all of the key scenes and everything that happened. And then Coppola just elaborated on them and and brought so much magic and energy and danger and everything and blood and and violence and everything else to it that it just became this this amazing thing you know almost like an opera which is kind of how yes. he saw it operatic operatic you know, and, shakespearean you yeah. know bigger than life um mario puzo said he had never met an honest uh you know a, a, a gang an actual gangster he did right. it all from research and well, uh, yes, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say you, you, you mentioned a second ago that uh, Coppola was desperate. Lucas said, well, you have to do it. You have to find something that you can attach yourself to here because we need the money. <laughs> this entire project, if you go back to Puzo, is born out of desperation. Yes, because Puzo um, had published two novels before. And while they were critically well received, they weren't financially successful. He made 3,500 in, in advance for the first novel, and I think 3,000 for the second. And uh, the classic story is uh, one night he has suffered a gallbladder attack and got into a taxi and directed the taxi to the VA hospital in New York. And once he arrived at the hospital, he opened the door and fell out with the pain of the gallbladder attack, and he fell into the gutter. And there, looking up at the night sky of New York, he goes, here I am, a published author, and I'm dying like a dog. And he said, that's when I decided I'm going to be rich and famous. <laughs> that's such a great story. <laughs> and and, so and a, a, a story that you hear from every director who goes on a talk show is saying, uh, oh, these, these people were my first choice. And in the case of The Godfather, that cast was actually Coppola's first choice. I know. He envisioned this cast, which is pretty amazing because these actors were not big stars then. Uh, they had been in films. Uh, Robert Duvall and James Caan had been in a Coppola film uh, uh, that he directed. But, you know, they weren't stars. Al Pacino had not been seen on screen in a film. He had shot The Panic in, in Needle Park, but he was primarily known as an actor on Broadway and off Broadway. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody said, who is Al Pacino? You know, we want to give this to a, a star. And of course, after Coppola envisioned this cast and brought them to San Francisco, where he filmed them in these inexpensive uh, screen tests, which you can see online, uh, he sent them down to the studio and they go, what is this? You know, and they insisted that he in, uh, embark upon a, a very expensive $400,000, I think, casting process where they where they screen tested and tested and auditioned many other actors for all the other roles. And you make the point in the book that had they just listened to him in the first place, Paramount would have saved, itself, saved themselves almost half a mil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And there was a method to his madness. He, he, you, there's a great line in the book. You quote him as saying he wanted to smell the garlic coming off the screen. Yeah, that was actually Robert <laughs> Evans, you know. Oh, Robert because, Evans said Yeah, that. Robert Excuse Evans me. said, you know, you must smell the spaghetti. He goes, right. you know, we want this movie to be, um, you know, Italian to the core. And they wanted Italian actors for Italian roles, which in many cases they got. Uh, Al Pacino, you know, of course, uh, James Caan was not, Marlon Brando was not, or and Tom Hagen, uh, Robert Duvall wasn't, of course. But right. some many of Al Letary, I mean, listen, look at him as 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 Salazzo. Who could be better than that? Sure. I t- Gilbert was surprised that Al Letary, by the way, was mobbed up. That his yeah, brother in law, yeah. his brother in law was what a capo. His his brother in law was. Uh, was reputedly connected. Let's just say that. And he, uh, wow. And and Alateri learned it from. Uh, you know, also Alateri knew Marlon Brando. Uh, there was there's a another book. I think it's Peter Manso's book. Quotes uh, someone is saying Brando learned the I, I could be a contender scene from Alateri. Uh, which is quite interesting, you know. So Alateri was around, and he turned out to be an amazing actor. And, um, and I, I remember uh, watching The Godfather with my mother, and there's that scene where it goes, you know, do you mind if we speak in Italian? Yeah. In the diner, and and I remember my mother saying to me that Alateri. Look, sounds like he speaks Italian, but Pacino doesn't. Yeah, they were. Uh, Alateri did, of course. Of course, he spoke Italian, and uh, I think that somebody had told me for the book that uh, Al Pacino, when he breaks into English, that was because he kind of lost lost the Italian a- aspect for a moment, and he said, and he started talking, um, speaking in English. But it worked so well for the it scene, works. right? It works. Yeah, yeah it, because yeah. then the audience can understand what they're saying without subtitles. It, it, yes. it really that that part I thought for sure was in the script. Yeah, no, I think that was yeah. totally not in the script. Yeah. So yeah. It works too because Michael is of is, is clearly of a different generation. And, yes. and 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 is and is if if anything, he's turning his back on the old world. So you buy you completely buy that he wants to speak English. Exactly. In that moment, yeah. Exactly. But what what I was alluding to before too, when I misattributed that quote to uh, to Coppola, is the method to his madness is he said Italian actors will understand what I mean culturally because they grew up with this. I don't have time in making this movie to explain to non Italians. Right, right. He thought by casting Italian American actors for the Italian American roles, they carry that and they emanate from the screen, which was so true. You know, look at Luca Brasi. Uh, you know, Lenny Montana. Uh, of course. And he just, you know, you look at him and you think, oh, my gosh, this guy could be the unenforcer. What is the story in the back of the book at the toward the end of the book where Lenny, Lenny Montana punches out Al Ruddy? Yes, what, that was so was interesting. That That's that was one of the mysteries. Yes. <laughs> what is a mystery? That's a mystery. But he yeah, he opens the door and there is uh, Lenny Montana. I mean, Lenny Montana was what, 300 and something pounds. Yeah, uh, I don't think you want to. He, he was quite a fierce individual. And Al Ruddy was quite thin and uh, very tall. Um, and then that. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Right. As speaking of the actors who weren't Italian, like um, James Caan was a Jew from Queens, and but you explain why he's so convincing as a mobster. 
Yeah, he grew up in that world, Sunnyside, right? And he grew up in that world. He knew uh, he knew that world. He knew those some some of the people in his neighborhood. Uh, and then, but the interesting thing about James Conn, first he goes out and he goes to like a, a thrift shop and he buys these two-tone shoes that are too tight for him. So that gives him that kind of walk, you know, that Sonny did. But he was mm-hmm. stuck on a scene, he told me, and he said, he, he 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 couldn't wasn't responding fast enough, and I think it was the scene in the olive oil factory where they're meeting with Salazzo, and he says, uh, "What do you mean the Tatalias are going to guarantee our investment?" Uh, Gilbert can probably say that better than I can. But <laughs> thank you. But, Sonny, but then and Sonny, but but he but he was stuck. Then he remembers Don Rickles. You know Don Rickles, the insult comic, who who talked a mile a minute and would you know say anything to anybody. You know, and he thought about Don Rickles and he brought that to his performance where he's just talking off the top of his head. And he said, once he got that, then he knew how to, how to respond to Sonny. I thought that was so interesting that he brought Don Rickles to that, to the Godfather. It's just something you would never imagine. So it was Rickles comic delivery. That's, yeah, that fast pace, yeah. you know, one one liner after another, you know, just, you know, what do you mean? All over your Ivy League suit, you know, bada bing. That was another, uh, ad lib bada bing you know because he, he, he i asked him i said how that how did you come up with that he goes i don't know it just was like i'd heard something similar bada boom did i say bada boom did i say bada ba? he said bada bing it just comes out and look that just entered the uh oh yeah vocabulary bada bing and then it becomes a part of the sopranos exactly we will return to gilbert gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this Well, here's another fascinating thing from the book. I have seen the movie 200 times. Uh, Until I read your book, I don't don't know why Jimmy Kahn, James Kahn, is holding a a cane in in that scene. And he's he's using it quite uh, quite comfortably. So interesting. So what happened is in the scene in Louis' Italian-American restaurant in the Bronx where Michael blows uh, away Salazzo and McCluskey, yeah. Uh, after that scene, he was supposed to run out of the restaurant, drop the gun, and then jump on a car, you know, the getaway car. But nobody had told him what to do. And so he jumps and he missed the car and fell in the street and severely um, injured his ankle, I think it was. And so he had to walk with a cane. So he had that cane in the room where Sonny says, the bada bing line and that's why sonny has the cane yeah and i've seen the movie 200 times and i'm and i'm always wondering why the hell has he got a cane yeah why is he's got why the is cane. He gest- also why, with a why did cane? don corleone have a cat in the opening scene uh why has he got a cat in his arms well that cat was uh in the old filmway studio it was just a vagabond cat that was eating the rats in the studio <laughs> and he rambles he kind of ambles onto the set and brando picks him up and uh, then the rushes come back to uh, the dailies, go back to Los Angeles. They go, what, what the hell is this cat purring into the microphone? We can't hear Brando because he's mumbling. And all we hear is this cat. It's amazing. It's great stuff. And, you know, and tell us about how Pacino, what, what made him jump on the car in the first place? Well, because he, it was part of the scene. He was supposed, he had been working all night and um, it was, he was supposed to jump on the car 
on the running board as the car run uh, sped away in front of the restaurant, which you see, yes. which you see in the movie. But according to uh, th there was a, a, a assistant to Coppola who wrote a diary of, of some of these of all of these events, a day by day diary, which I quote a lot in the book. Um, and he had written that uh, no Pacino had said back then uh, that nobody they hadn't been instructed on how to jump on the car or what to do. And so he just leapt. He leapt and he <laughs> fell. And that's why he strained, sprained his ankle and he was using a cane. And I think that's a low point in the book for Coppola because because Brando misses the flight. Yes, uh, on the Pacino first injures himself. I'm trying to remember if that's the point where where Coppola was so frustrated he went home, took a blanket off the bed, and tore it into shreds with his bare yes, hands. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because the first Brando misses his flight on the day of his first scene, and then this happened with Pacino. So it was one thing after another. You know, I mean, the Coppola is, is a young filmmaker, uh, just turned 30. He's 31. He's 32 when the movie comes out. Um, and all of these things were being thrown at him. This, you know, this big cast, um, all of these things were things were going wrong. It was very, you know, difficult in the beginning. There were threats that he might be replaced. There was insurrection among his own right. crew. There was, uh, you know, talk of, of, of uh, Al Pacino uh, not being kept on until that amazing scene in the restaurant. Once, once they saw you know, the scene in the in the restaurant, there was no denying the greatness of Pacino or Coppola. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, in uh, before I forget, like one of my favorite lines in The Godfather is Al Latiri, uh when he says, uh, you think too much of me, Michael. <laughs> I am the hunted one. He's so great. Yeah, that's he's a great so, scene. He, and the way he so plays great. it is so good. I mean, he's just, he was great, right? Oh, oh yeah, fantastic. Actor. Well, all of those secondary parts where he cast Italians, you know, yeah. Louis Louis Gus, even that, down to the small, you know, the smallest mobster part, but but uh, but Richard Conti, oh, yeah. uh, and and Latiri, and the guy playing Philip Tataglia. I mean, they're all they're all so wonderful. And Johnny uh, Martino is as uh, you know Johnny Martino's as Polly Gatto in the beginning, Paulie. you know, right? Where he throws uh, the sandwiches, and he said, if, if this was anybody else's wedding, that that silk purse with all the money would be gone. Maron. <laughs> He's <laughs> great. What, De Niro was almost going to play that yeah, part? Yeah, De Niro Poligato? was, they considered uh, De Niro as Poligato, and had he gotten the role, he couldn't have been in Godfather 2 because he would have been dead out on the, uh, in the steer, uh, with, his, with his head in the steering wheel out on that desolate road right. where the Statue of Liberty has his back to the uh, murder scene. And as long as we're talking about that scene that lends its name to your book, yeah. And an, another brilliant Italian actor is is, is Castellano, Richard Castellano, yeah. uh, uh, playing Clemenza, a line that he improvised. Exactly. So, which I also didn't know until I read Mark Seal. Thank you so much. So, <laughs> yeah, the line is not in the novel. Uh, the line was in the script that was co-written by Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo, but they only had written "Leave the Gun," but. Richard Castellano remembers what his wife told him from the stoop that morning. Don't forget the cannoli, she yells out. And that was his real wife in real life. And so they go out, they do the killing. And Richard Castellano 
uh, tells Rocco, the driver, you know, leave the gun. And then he remembers what his wife told him that morning. And he goes, take the cannoli. And to me, that says everything about the movie, because it yeah. is a movie about guns. It's a movie about criminals. It's a movie about murder and mayhem and everything else that you see in The Godfather. But it's also about the cannoli, maybe more about the cannoli, <laughs> because the cannoli represents the family, the yeah. food, the, and the, you know, and what it takes to put that food on the table, you know? So it's about the gun, yes, but it's more about the cannoli, and that's why the title uh, "Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli," and that's a perfect. I think title. Richard Castellano uh, ad-libbed that line perfectly and came up with something extraordinary. And also, it's how cold-blooded it is—like just such a throwaway line. Yeah. Of yeah. like, like the cannolis are more important than this guy that they killed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're right. Let's get out of here. You know, leave the gun. I always wonder why they want to leave the gun. Why wouldn't they take the gun? You know, why, why leave the gun for evidence? <laughs> you it's know? weird. It's weird. And now, Richard Castellano, they asked him to be in Godfather 2. Yes. And uh, he had a lot of demands. He wanted script approval. Wow. According to some. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. So... You know, it's a pity because he was so great. I mean, he was one of the great. He was when you left that movie, you kept thinking about him because sure. he was, as Coppola writes in his notes. You know, he's showing Michael. He's like a uncle, your favorite uncle in the basement with Popular Mechanic magazines. This is what Coppola wrote in the Godfather Notebook. Uh, you know, there's Popular Mechanic, you know, magazines, and he's in a basement like instructing a you know, his relative how to do something, except he's instructing him on how to kill a man, you know? You know, remember uh, that scene? That scene was so endearing. You just, you, I don't know, there was something about Richard Castellano that was yeah. just and, so and profound. I, yeah, I remember I there's also that line, Richard Castellano is listening in on the call, and he goes, why don't you tell that girl you love her? Yeah. I love her, you with all of my heart. If I don't see you, I'm going to die. <laughs> that's the best. I love that. Yes, that's right. I think that yeah, was also that he's making the sauce and the meatballs. He, uh, the, yeah, the, this, the, you know, you put in. That's the yeah. great thing about yeah. making that, making the sauce. Make, actually, you know, I have uh, in some of the documents that I was able to see. Richard Castellano actually writes a memo saying the specific type of sauce he wanted to use in that scene. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> now, uh, uh, but by them not getting Richard Castellano, I heard is why they hired uh, Michael V. Gazzo. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. You know, I, you know, I'm not sure about what happened but yes because they didn't get Castellano you know they had to come up with someone to play his role in the younger days so yes but well there was there know. was talk you know you know and this is one thing too that comes through in your book is that there are so many conflicting versions of events yes you know you right. could start in this book there's Coppola's version of events there's there's uh, Robert Evans' version of events. There's Peter Bart's version of events, which is usually kind of an intermediary. <laughs> it's, it's, right. I believe Peter Bart. Uh, uh, but uh, but you also hear conflicting stories about. Well, well, I I read something that Castellano didn't want to play the part uh, of of somebody who betrays the Corleone family. 
he wasn't comfortable with that part, the part that Frankie Five Angel, the uh, the character that Frankie Five Angels becomes. But now you're telling us something uh, entirely different that he that he had demands. Yes, that's and, for and, sure. That's been that's been pretty much. Uh, uh, documented, you know, that he, that's been told quite a bit that he did have demands. He wanted to have the approval script approval over what he said. And, uh, you know, that's just some, that's what I, I was told. So that, I think that was kind of the overriding reason. I haven't really heard that other one that you mentioned. Was he, or was he not related to Paul Castellano? Who well, was shot okay. Dead in front of so Spar- some people, <laughs> you know, steakhouse. his wife said yes, but, uh, I talked to a relative <laughs> who said no. And so, you know, that's another one of conflicting stories. That's the thing. Everybody has a different, uh, you know, when you make a masterpiece, you know, there's a lot of everybody has different visions on versions on what happened, who did what. Uh, But, you know, the great thing is it's on the screen and you watch that movie and you don't hear all the the background. But it's interesting to know, you know, all the different uh, versions of different ideas, different takes, you know, so I tried to include them all. Oh, you got so much in there. Let me ask now, you a couple of – go ahead, Gil. Now, Brando at that point, you know, now you look at it and say, oh, the great Marlon Brando. But yeah. at that point, he was looked upon as a has-been. Yeah, he was He was pretty much washed up. At 47, he was so young. I but, love your line that he gave everybody in, in Tahiti the, the clap. That was – yeah. <laughs> that, that was from Peter Biskin. Exactly, right. yes. Peter Biskin. He um, – so he was considered box office poison. His latest, his movies, the movies that he had done recently had flopped uh, at the box office. Uh, he was considered temperamental, but, um, you know, and he didn't want to do it. That's the other thing. He didn't want to play a mafia Don. He goes, I'm not going to be a mafia Don. But then there was something that happened. Uh, you know, Coppola's First of all, Mario Puzo saw him as the godfather from the beginning. And he wrote him a letter. He wrote him this extraordinary letter that you can see in the book. And it said the address where Mario Puzo sent the letter from was scrawled across the top. It said North Carolina Fat Farm. And he was at Duke University Fat Farm uh, Reducing Clinic. And he wrote, Dear Mr. Brando, I wrote a book you may have that has had some success uh, called The Godfather. And I believe you are the only actor who can play The Godfather with the quiet intensity that the role deserves. And the studio did not want Marlon Brando, but Coppola wanted Marlon Brando so much that he almost insisted on Marlon Brando. And they said, okay, if you do a screen test with Brando and other demands, we'll consider it. So Coppola went up to the Brando home on Mulholland Drive with a small crew. uh, And they didn't tell him it was going to be a screen test. They said it was going to be a makeup test. And this is one of the, you know, great fables stories of the godfather is that brando comes out with a ponytail he's young he's 47 uh in a kimono and he right in front of the cameras he's you know put some uh uh shoe polish on his upper lip he pulls back his ponytail he stuffs his cheeks with kleenex he says i want to talk like a bulldog and he becomes don corleone and from that point on coppola took the tape to New York where he showed it to Charlie Bluthorn, who was the head of Gulp and Western Paramount's mm-hmm. parent company. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, nobody could deny that, that Brando was the godfather. Charlie Bluthorn, and, another great character in the yes. book, by the way. And, Hurricane and, Charlie. <laughs> Hurricane Charlie. There's also another name that has to be mentioned. 
is the great makeup artist Dick Smith. Yes. Because not only did he make Brando, who was in his 40s, into an old man, but in The Exorcist, uh, Max von Sydow was in his early 40s when he did that. Yeah. Yeah. He was I a mean, wizard. Brando is, you, you know, you look at him and you think, wow, that's Brando. Then you see the pictures before, the before and after, uh, before the makeup and then after the makeup. He's so young. He's still, you know, 47. And one of the unsung heroes of the movie is, is and I forget her name, forgive me, is Brando's personal assistant. Yes. Who? who, who Alice kept, Marshak. Alice yes, Marshak, she, who kept so pushing him. She kept pushing him. And the, the interesting thing is that she said, they were also considering Lawrence Olivier and uh, Brando just wasn't interested at all until she said she told him, well, they're considering Lawrence Olivier. And she, he goes, Lawrence Olivier, he can't play a mafia Don. He goes, then suddenly he was interested. And, and <laughs> That's great. There were a few Competitive names. nature. Now, I could, you know, easily imagine Rod Steiger as Don yeah. Corleone, but. They said that Rod Steiger called up and wanted to be Michael. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think that was <laughs> was that uh, Sue Mingers called uh, Mar- called call Mario Puzo. That's right. The agent Sue Mingers called Mario Puzo and said, "I wanted. To, can I take you to lunch?" And Mario Puzo, you know, he, he liked to have lunch, but he was he didn't want to go to lunch with an agent, so he just said. Uh, you know, I guess maybe he didn't know who Sue Mingers was. You know, she was one of the great agents, the most uh, powerful agents in Hollywood. She goes, what about Rod Steiger for Michael? And he goes, well, I don't know. You know, Michael's pretty young. And I think Rod Steiger was in his late 40s then or maybe older. Yeah, unbelievable. Let me ask you a, co- a couple of quick questions from sure. listeners and fans Uh, uh- Mark, uh, Howard Seidman, I want to know more about the casting of Ava Vigoda. Somebody Gilbert and I got to know uh, yeah. fairly well as Tessio. Was he picked out at an open casting call? And how did a non-Italian do such a good job? And then we want to ask you about another person that Gilbert and I have had on this show, and that's Gianni Russo. Oh, yeah. So uh, Abe Vigoda, amazing. Uh, I was able to interview Abe Vigoda, Vigoda in his New York apartment. And he told me he went down to Little Italy and studied the, the accents and the way people talked, the way people spoke and walked and, and, uh, and everything. But he was not an Italian. Uh, but I think I believe he was in a ca- open casting call. And, uh, and he just he just embodied that role of Tessio so well, you know. Uh, remember the scene, Gilbert? I know you can probably do that great too. Where he goes, <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Where he goes, you know, it wasn't me. You know, it was it was business. It wasn't personal. Always, yes. Like, yeah. And, and and you know, it just shows you what a great actor Abe Vigoda was. Because in real life, he was like a curmudgeonly old Jew. And he is so convincing in The Godfather. And, and yeah, that, that line, uh, uh, tell Michael it was business. <laughs> Always little, liked him. A little aside for you, uh, Mark. When, when Abe passed away, the family asked Gilbert to roast Abe at his service. Oh, wow. That's great. Which, which yeah. he did. The, and and the, uh, it got all over the place. All the papers <laughs> covered it. That's I was roasting so a pagoda. He was a sweet man. We we both got to know him a little bit. Well, didn't he play? He played a lot of uh, mob roles after that. 
I believe. Yeah. That's what he told yeah. me. And, he was and such a at, gentleman. At the funeral, when they were wheeling the casket away, uh, uh, the Godfather theme came on. Oh, my gosh. And it How was great. just terrific. The music that Robert Evans hated. Yes. <laughs> Nino Rocha. Yeah. Can, that was such a, that every time you hear that music, I mean, you just think of the, so many things that you, about the Godfather that you just know where you are in that point in time when you hear that music come on. Yeah. And there was this uh, yet, yet another uh, moment of Godfather three that he hated is when the guy who's supposed to be uh, Pacino's son or something takes out a guitar and he sings the Godfather theme. It's in the music of the Godfather theme, but different words. Wow. Huh. And, yeah, and it, it's so weird. Cause I, don't first think, of, yeah. I, I don't think Mark's going to write a book about the third movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's... I wish a, I, someone would. I don't think that's in, that's on his agenda. <laughs> but, what, let's, but the second episode that we ever did of this show, Mark, and we're up to 400 of them, our second guest after Dick Cavett was Gianni Russo. Wow. And so there are different accounts too of how he got that part. Who was he was really a non actor. He had a he had a something some version of a variety show in in Vegas, in Las Vegas, right? Yeah, but he wasn't an actor, and no. he let he led us to believe that his relationship with Frank Costello, uh, and not just us, he's led others to believe this. If I have this right, uh, uh, was instrumental in getting him that part. But but in your book, you you make it seem more like he just chased the part and. Yeah, I think it's they a little bit of right. everything. You know, this is another one of the uh, stories of The Godfather. I mean, um, you know, I've, Johnny Russo has given me so much of his time. I, when I first met him for the Vanity Fair story, he said, meet me at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And that's where we did our interview. And I spent, a, I think I spent a day with him. And he's just one of the great storytellers of all he is. And <laughs> um And what a life he's led, right? And yes. And, uh, you know, the story goes is that he made a tape of himself playing all all three roles, I think. I think Michael, Sonny and and uh, Carlo. And what a, I mean, look at what he did with the role of Carlo. I mean, you just believe him that he would sell out, you know, that, you know, in the scene of him and Sonny in that fight. And 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 one of my favorite scenes is is, again, Richard Castellano. Uh, where after Michael gives, uh, you know, says, okay, you're going to Las Vegas, you know, and he's sitting there almost trembling and they give him those airline tickets and he's like nodding his head, you know, and then they take him out to the car and Castellano says that famous line, hello, Carlo, you know, and then the, the garrison begins. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. And that was back in the days when Pacino could give a subtle performance. <laughs> Yes. Well, that was the whole thing about his role. And that was the thing that that they didn't know about in the beginning, because he thought the whole role was in the transition, you know, that he had to start slow because he was a college boy, you know, right. and he was a, a millet in the military. And and then, you know, you see the gradual transformation of him when he gets punched by, by McCluskey and then he tells Sonny, you know, you get me a gun, you plant it somewhere, a bar, a restaurant, someplace where we can get it in. I wish Gilbert would do that scene. Uh, and then I'll kill them both. Then I'll kill them both, you know? Well, Evans was calling him the runt. 
Exactly. He was so impressed. Yeah. Impressed. And and, and, and in a way, as you say, Pacino was contributing to being underwhelming by underplaying. Yeah, but that was his whole brilliant, the the way that he wanted to play it. But then, you know, he caught, you know, they, he was short, but, but as Al Ruddy said, when he saw him on Broadway, he looked about seven feet tall. So he, he was a great actor, but he just hadn't been in a fit, been seen on the, on the screen before. And, and, you know, that, Reminds me again, watching the movie with my mother and, and her saying, uh, he acts with his eyes. Yeah, that's right. That's what, that's what, um, I think it was George Lucas's wife. They said, cast, cast, uh, Pacino as Michael, you know, it's all in his eyes and, and it is, I mean, he just, I think she said something like he undresses you. That's right. Exactly. You got it right. Yeah. 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 And speaking of the scene, since you brought it up where Carlo fights, uh, the, the street brawl, it's not much of a brawl. It's really a beating between Carlo and, and Sonny, uh, Khan improvised, uh, one of the weapons, the, uh, the, the sawed off mop. That's right. The mop handle. He tells the prop master, he goes, you know, one of those uh, sawed off mop handles, uh, give me a mop handle and saw it off. And, and then he goes, what do you mean? What are you going to do with that? It's not in the script. He goes, don't worry. Just, uh, you know, and then he throws it. And, uh, you know, that scene was, uh, that scene was pretty wild. That Coppola scene was- uses yeah. the take where he misses him, but, yeah. but according to your book, he clipped him in the back of the head in one of the, in one of the takes. That's what uh, Gianni said. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was, part you know it, it was it, it was authentic let's just say that for sure johnny told us that 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 con had it out for him that the that the that the uh, the actors the real actors on set did not view him they viewed him as an interloper because he said con broke two of his ribs and he, what, and he yeah he, tells he, us, he told us he thinks it was intentional oh my gosh yeah so, yeah he taught he tells the story about uh that they met the night before in a in a club and uh and that there was some kind of an altercation or disagreement, let's say. And I loved when Khan bites his hand. Yes, that was a great, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that was an amazing touch. I, I, I mean, Sonny, Sonny, the character of Sonny was just. Uh, now you you asked me about Carmen Caridi. That's right. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. What yeah. about Car- what about so Carmen, Carmen Caridi, Caridi? I was able to interview him for the Vanity Fair story back in 2008. And he was living in Los Angeles and he told the story that, and, you know, it was widely known. He was cast as um, Sonny, uh, but he hadn't signed the deal yet, but he was told that he had the role. And so he went out and he was, you know, in his old neighborhood and there was a parade and, you know, he was celebrating and only to have at the last minute, you know, with Al Pacino cast as Michael, well, Carmen Caridi was so tall, it would have been, you know, improbable to have, you know, such a tall man and such a, you know, uh, he would tower over over Al Pacino. And so they came to the decision that let's cast uh, James Kahn, who was being considered for Michael as Sonny, and then we'll have, uh, you know, Francis Coppola's first choice of Michael. Uh, to be Al, Al Pacino. So they had to tell Carmen Caridi that he he didn't get the job. And so, you know, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking yeah. for him. And it was, uh, you know, uh, because he was a fine actor. He was on Broadway, I think, in Man of La Mancha at that time. And so uh, he, I'm sure he would have made a great son, a great Sonny, but he wasn't James Caan. And John, James Caan was, was an amazing Sonny. So who knows what would have happened if those roles had been reversed? 
And yeah. I, I remember in my early days at Catch a Rising Star, Carmine Caridi was just one of those guys hanging out at the bar. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, he he was uh, he was a great actor, but who knows what would have happened now? Um, you know, now he's gone. So many of the great actors that were, um, you know, Al Martino's not here anymore. Uh, uh, Robert Evans is gone. Um, oh, John Cazale. Uh, yeah, so Richard Castellano, Richard Castellano. So anyway, so 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 many of them. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. Well, yeah. here, here's a here's another question for you, um, uh, Mark Skoback. In Robert Evans' book, The Kid Stays in the Picture, he takes full credit for making Coppola re-edit the film to make it longer. Is that accurate? And what was left out of well, the original Well, of course. Cut? Now, that's one of the great battles in cinema. You know, uh, Coppola says he was told to make it shorter. Evans says he was wanting to make it longer. So, you know, you can read the telegrams between the two, which were quite uh, historic and one of the great you know battles uh so there are very big differing of, of of opinions in that uh but you know evans also wrote that he said you know you know add add more you, should, you know it's it, it just like back and forth there are so many different opinions but this is probably the biggest one between coppola and evans is who t who said uh you know to make it i can't imagine coppola wanting to make it shorter for sure can't imagine can't yeah. imagine you also print in the book what it, 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 toward the end of the book one of the wonderful inclusions in the book is these angry letters that they're firing off yeah. at, at, at each other uh yeah. And did they make peace in the end? Yeah, well, Evans Evans said that they did. Evans said that on the 20th, 25th anniversary of The Godfather, held pointedly in San Francisco, not Los Angeles, uh, mm -hmm. that that uh, Coppola came up to him and, and hugged him and said, you know, you must have done something right. So, uh, yeah, I think they made peace at the end. That's nice. That's also, sweet. Also, I heard, like, uh, that scene at the end where that goes between the christening and all the murders, uh, wasn't Coppola, and it was like, like an editor who said this would work much better. I, I heard it was going to be a whole long christening scene, and then the murders one right after. Yeah, the other. that's right. That was interesting. Yeah, I think one of the one of his editors suggested that undercutting the christening scene with those murders, which did it was so great, where he blow, where you know he kills all of his rivals all in one afternoon, where they're saying, you know, Michael, do you renounce Satan and all of that. Uh, so that was amazing. And I believe I, I, the name escapes me of that great editor, but it was a film editor who who was quoted about that later. Well, let me ask you about Evans, because oh, yeah. the, the book opens with you visiting Robert Evans house and, and, and uh, rather amusingly, you wind up in, lying in his bed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was so great. So what happened was I come, go to Evans home and it's 2008. And he was ready for me. You know, he had all the clippings covered the table. Uh, they let me in. His butler let me in. 
to the room and Robert Emmons makes this grand entrance. You know, he was known for making ent great entrances. His hair is slicked back, his smiles are dazzling white. He's looking out through rose colored glasses. And then he goes, let's go to bed. And I went, what? And he goes, his screening room had burned down. And so he and his friends would watch movies in bed. And I, love I, it. I went, <laughs> great, okay. And so we go in and, um, he has a screen set up to show parts of the Godfather. And so, you know, I lay, I, you know, sit on, I lay there and we're watching the We watched all these scenes, these various scenes and he's talking to me the whole time. And that's where he would watch movies. And uh, so it was just a wonderful experience. He gave me so much that day, as far as great quotes and stories and memories. And, you know, he was just this amazing, uh, Last, you know, they don't make Robert, Robert Evans, which is this amazing. Uh, you can't. Yeah, he's one of the last sort of, of lions character. of the old studio system. Exactly. I'm so blessed to have been able to speak with him. And uh, at one and point, he took a picture, a picture off the off the shelf, and showed it to you. And it's a bittersweet moment, or really yeah. a sad, a, a, not not even bittersweet, but just sad. Exactly. He showed me a picture of him of him at the Godfather premiere. You can see the picture. Uh, online where he uh, is dancing with his wife, Allie McGraw, and, uh, you know, at the premiere. And uh, and then, uh, you know, he says, little did he know that, you know, she was involved with Steve McQueen by then at the, for the getaway. And uh, so it was a bittersweet moment for him to look back and talk about that. Yeah. And it's there's sad. also a part in the book where you said Al Pacino and Diane Keaton uh, went out to have dinner together and they were talking about, well, it's over for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> what is the, what is this movie? What's going to happen to this movie? What is this all about? You know? Uh, yeah, because it's crazy. You know, I don't think anybody had an idea at the time that they were making this classic movie that we'd be talking about 50 years later, you know? Yeah, because yeah. it was so unlikely. There was all these mir miraculous forces, a series of miracles that this movie even came together and then to come together as it did with all of these ad libs and happenstance and, you know, uh, spur of the moment things that happened that just added to the magic of it. It Which seems is, blessed in a way, really, it, it, because you, that's what you come away with when reading the book. Every time uh, you, you come to a to a fork in the road and something could go terribly wrong, it goes right. Coppola's instincts are pretty unerring. Exactly. You know, the yeah. casting, the music, Gordon Willis, all, all the all the choices that he made, everything that he fought for. But still, there was so much luck. Yeah, was so, so much luck. So much you know, luck. So and much. Puzo, Puzo gets that great line. Uh, 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 tell us about the. Uh, he's talking to the legendary Carl Cohen on the on the casino floor. Oh and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. it involves the actor. A story that involves the fugitive actor David Jansen. Yeah. So uh, I was told by uh, the pit boss. Um, uh, sorry, I was told by a pit boss in Las Vegas, Edward Walters, uh, that uh, one night. Uh, David Jansen uh, came into the sands and was a bit unruly and uh, Carl Cohen uh, subdued him and uh, they go, well, how'd you do it? And he goes, I made him an offer. He couldn't refuse. <laughs>
And, and of Puzo course, said, others and then others say that that line came from Mario Puzo's mother, because Mario Puzo said a lot of the great lines he gave to Don Corleone were first spoken by his Italian-American mother. I love that. And his mother I, who stole I the police heard, club. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that Coppola, uh, at one point, he was talking to Martin Scorsese. And he, uh, Martin Scorsese said his mother always loved Richard Conti. And and said he should be in the movie. Ah, uh, yeah, I, you know that I don't know. That's a new one for me, but I can believe it. <laughs> well, you'll Gilbert, have to redo the. Book. I would have, yeah, I would have to do that, include that. Uh, Mark, what is your personal relationship to this movie? Uh, and it may be a difficult question to a- answer, but you saw it as a college student way back yes. in 1972, 50 years ago. In- incredible. And and, uh, yeah. and and did, and you couldn't have imagined sitting in that in that theater that 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 it would become such a part of your career. And let's point out to people that this you know your relationship and your work on this did not begin with this book, as you said, it began with a Vanity Fair article yes. years ago, and you did talk to all of the the principal players. Right. Uh, what 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 is what is your personal uh, what is your personal feeling about this film uh, in, in terms of why is it's so beloved and why it well, yeah, why it's so, that kind of movie you cannot turn off when you stumble across it? Yeah. Well, there's two things. Um, first, I'll tell you, I was a college freshman, 19 years old, on spring break, and I visited yeah. my mom in Memphis, Tennessee, and I went into a theater. I always say as a kid, and I came out three hours later as an adult. Uh, I had seen a world that I had never experienced before on film and it just like floored me. And I think there's two reasons why it endures. First of all, it's a period piece. Uh, Coppola insisted that it be filmed as a period piece in the 1940s setting as Mario Puzo had written it in his novel. And so that gives the film this timeless feel. It's as fresh today as it was 50 years ago because it was yeah. it was a period piece then. So that gives it this patina uh that doesn't, you know, diminish with age. And the other thing that makes it uh endure is that it's a story not just about gangsters or criminals and blood and gore and all of that, which is certainly about, but it's also about family. And the family aspect is what gives it its heart and soul. And so I think those are the two things that make The Godfather uh, endure 50 years and forever. Yeah. And that one, and, and if I may add one thing that you point out in the book, that it, that people feel a certain powerlessness and this fantasy, this fulfillment fantasy of there's a man who could. Yes. There's a man that can right take in the world. care, especially in the 1970s, you know, when the when the America was in upheaval, you know, Watergate was ahead and, uh, you know, Vietnam War was 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 raging. I mean, you know, the, or, or coming to a head. And and then there was a man that you could go to. Uh, who could take care of things. You know, it's like the new American Western. That's what uh, yeah. uh, the film scholar, um, uh, a, a film scholar said. Um, and that Puzo had created this world. Um, and it's like, you know, where they're gunslingers, but a lot of times the people that they're gunslinging against deserved what they got. So you, you, you know, what's odd is like that scene I did at the beginning of the show where, he talks about his daughter uh, getting bonus, beaten. Bonus Sarah, yeah. And I, I, 
every time I watch that, I'm kind of waiting for the scene of them actually uh, catching up with those guys. Yeah, you know, that was written in the book. Uh, in the novel, there's quite a bit of that scene where they do catch up with them and they and what happens. Uh, but, and that, you know, I don't know if you needed it in the, in the movie because you kind of can imagine what happened uh, you know, without yeah. seeing it. You know what's interesting, Mark? I'm sure you've seen the Godfather saga where they reassembled the the the, the longer version and they put mm -hmm. Coppola's cuts back in. Mm. And there's the scene where Fabrizio's car blows up. Michael gets revenge uh, yeah. against the the the, uh, the bodyguard that betrayed him. There's a more extensive scene at uh, at Jack Waltz's house where you see the girl, one of the oh, actresses, yeah, yeah, I saw it right exactly, yeah, yeah, who's, yeah, who's, who he's getting strung out on heroin and all of this crazy stuff. And and you come away thinking Coppola made the right decisions the I first time. I think so. I do too, because it's so it's so uh, economical and it just has a movement and it just moves so fast. Yeah, we got to thank you for writing this book, my friend. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your kind words. Oh, tell us, give us some plugs. I mean, uh, the, the where can people? Uh, uh, they, you got a website? Yeah, I have a website. It's uh, www.mark-seal.com. Uh, and you can, you know, I'm on uh, Instagram and social media. And of course, you can buy the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, somebody, somebody needs to make uh, a, a film, a documentary based on your book. Uh, Thank you. Yes, I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm so glad you liked the book. I loved oh, it. And, and Al and Franz will eat it up. That just reminds me, uh, Al Ruddy's car got shot up. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's also crazy. And he took to wearing a disguise at one point, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Al Ruddy's assistant, Betty McCart, I uh, was able to interview her as well. And she said they traded cars because they were getting all these threats. And so they thought they would trade cars. And so she took Al Ruddy's sports car up to her home on Mulholland one night. And in the middle of the night, she heard gunshots and went out the next morning and the windshield had been blasted out. And in place of the windshield was a note saying somebody didn't want the movie made. <laughs> Insane. And then the, somebody makes that threatening call to Evans. And, That's and, and right. It was Sherry Netherland Hotel where he craziness. Uh, yeah, a absolute craziness. I mean, it, you 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 do make the case that the uh, the making of the film is as dramatic as the as the film itself. But uh, how busy have you been today on this day where uh, it's the actual 50th anniversary of the yeah, first Yeah, today's time? the big day. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, I've been pretty busy. So today's <laughs> the day. Uh, 50 years ago, right now, just about. A, Those just limos a, were coming up to the Low State Theater in New York and depositing all these stars in the rain. Yeah. And that's when it all began. And they thought they had a flop on their hands because the audience didn't applaud. That's right. Everybody. Once it was over after three hours, it was just stunned silence. Nobody said a word. And Robert Evans wrote, you know, it's a bomb, you know. Uh, but it, they re later realized that it was people couldn't, they were stunned speechless. And yeah. that people, that experience, uh, it went across around the world. People were stunned beyond words by this movie. Thanks for telling your story. Thanks for, you know, we know today's been a crazy day for you. Thanks for squeezing us in. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, great words. And, and lastly, what's bothering you, Pop? I told you I could handle it. I'll handle it. 
I never wanted this kind of life for you. <laughs> I always thought when it was your turn, you'd be the one to pull the strings. Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. <laughs> Written by the great Robert Town. <laughs> That's great. So uh, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the author of, uh, watch me fuck up the, leave the gun, take the cannoli, uh, the very talented Mark Seal. And to all our listeners who love The Godfather, you will love this book. Get it post haste. It's, uh, it's It's a wonderful ride. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Okay, thank you.